This is not about who is superior or inferior. It's, it's really about being willing to act like part of a team. And, you know, like, a, like on <clears throat> in a football game, um, the, the, the quarterback and the, and the wide receiver are both critical to the success of that play, right, for the team. The quarterback has to throw the ball perfectly. The wide receiver has to catch it and run his route, right? Um, and they're both critical. They, they can't throw that touchdown pass without each of them being there. And they're both equally important to the dynamic. But they have different roles, and, and they're drastically different roles, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. The team succeeds when they both do their different roles. Now, it's true that sometimes the quarterback might get a little bit, he might get more praise, right? But he also gets more criticism when it's response, when, 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 when that's due. Maybe that's a terrible analogy. I don't know. The idea, though, is that teaming up together um, is, is what the Bible wants us to do rather than, <clears throat> than seeking autonomy in, in our, our marital relationship. See, the biblical um, context, the bigger biblical context here is that it's calling us to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. See, we demonstrate that reverence for Christ, for, for God's authority, when, when we can submit to authority on earth, right? And when we do it voluntarily. Husbands and wives each yield and surrender to each other, but in different ways. And in Ephesians here, we see that the wives are called to follow their husband's leadership. And we'll see later that husbands are called to have a sacrificial love for wives the way that Christ loved the church. Guys, if this concept is offensive, if the idea of loving others and putting them first before ourselves is, is offensive to our culture out there, Thank God. Good, right? I don't want to please that culture out there. So let's look at line number two that that culture out there also says. It, it tells us that the beauty is skin deep, <clears throat> but the Bible says that beauty comes from within. And you guys know this. I'm not, I'm not um, this isn't new information to anybody, but that culture out there is killing our girls. We have this crazy, ridiculous, mad obsession with external beauty, right? In, in 2020, the United States spent, they, the United States spent $9 billion on plastic surgery. And in 2018 alone, in the United States, we spent $89.5 billion on the beauty and care industry. Our young people are being hunted down electronically and fed this toxic reality that their value is defined by their physical appearances. Now, does that mean that, that we shouldn't care about how we look? No, certainly not. That's not the case at all. But there's something far more important. And, and Peter says the same thing here. In, in verses three and four, he says, don't be concerned about the outward beauty of fancy hairstyles, expensive jewelry, or beautiful clothes. You should clothe yourself instead with the beauty that comes from within, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, <clears throat> which is so precious to God. And now, you know, in this, Peter mentions, he's, he mentions some, some, ex, some excesses, right? He talks about um, beautiful clothes 
um, fancy hairstyles and expensive jewelry. And this isn't, you know, this is no snub on, on clothes or jewelry or any of that. Um, it's really not that. It's, it's more about the common denominator here that it's things that scream, look at me. So the problem really isn't beauty. It's, it's really more about self-absorption. And, you know, this isn't just, it's not just Peter's opinion here. Right? We can actually see this throughout God's word. We can see it written in, in different places. In 1 Timothy 2, it, it, Paul says, for women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things they do. And in Proverbs, it says that you're going to like this one. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. It's pretty clear, right? This is, you know... It, it really, this, it's the, the biblical perspective here is that inner beauty is far more important. We need to really seek out and strive for depth of character. That should be our priority. You know, and, and in this, in this uh, epistle, Peter also mentions, you know, having a gentle and quiet spirit. And I want to let you know, this is not suggesting that women need to stay quiet. He's just, he's referencing um, character traits that God finds appealing. And, and we know that the Bible is, is full of lots of positive examples of strong, successful women. You know, the point here, and, and please remember that this is, this is written to uh, the wives of unbelieving husbands. But the point here is that you won't win your husband to faith by outward beauty. And this is crucial for, for all of us, right? For all of us as we interact with that unbelieving world out there. Our focus needs to be on inner qualities that give, really that give power to our witness. Now it's worth noting that a misunderstanding of this dynamic has led to a popular counter argument that such teaching promotes rape culture. One in which women are forced to change how they act and dress rather than forcing men to address their behavior. And the problem the problem with this line of thought, though, is that, hey, thanks, man. Appreciate that. Cough drop. He's not dropping. <laughs> You'd be a terrible drug dealer. <laughs> um, I'm afraid if I eat that, though, I'll spit it out while I'm talking. We'll see. <clears throat> but, but really, the, the problem with this line of thought, though, is that it doesn't place responsibility on both genders, Rather, it just simply uh, transfers it to men. And we'll talk about men's responsibilities here in a second. But really, I want to tell you this. Just like it would be counterproductive, dishonoring, and in poor taste to flaunt alcohol around someone struggling with sobriety, a society that proudly promotes the objectification of women cannot be surprised when they end up being seen as objects. Guys, this isn't, loving the, this isn't loving other people the way that God commanded us to do. It isn't being sacrificial towards people the way that he demonstrated for us to do. This is not how God intended women to be viewed. And this is not where they get their value. Well, let's move on and talk about lie number three. Now, let's talk about men here, all right? Our culture says that Patriarchy is evil. Well, the Bible says that, that godly men exist. 
on our, our culture, patriarchy has been, has been vilified so much that many people assume that such a system must be evil, if, even if they don't uh, have the ability to explain how or, or why. Sadly, go, though, guys, and, 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 and truthfully, there's plenty in American history and even in church culture to understand how such a belief came about. See, past culture elevated a toxic kind of patriarchy. And, and you know, even though this, this started and was developed out of what people thought was a biblical headship of men, biblical leadership by men, was more of an expression of really an ungodly patriarchal culture that we, that we inherited from the medieval world. But guys, that was never fully consistent with the Bible. It certainly wasn't consistent with, with the, 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 the biblical view of, of the sexes. You know, here in, in uh, Christian America, in the early 19th century, women couldn't independently own property, they couldn't vote, right? And even in the present Christian world, there are plenty of men in Christian churches who hit their wives, who control them with fear, who demean them with words. And now many of you guys know that besides, besides pastoring this church, I also do work in the anti-human trafficking world. And I'm not sure that I've ever seen a more evil, a more evil uh, dynamic in all of my life than that. And uh, it is a sadly accurate example of the twisted, distorted form of patriarchy that our culture talks about. This is, you know, men who, who dominate women through physical abuse, sexual torture, sexual assault, drug addiction, death threats. But you know, in my experience doing that, the worst, the, the most disgusting and the most diabolical part of all of that is the coercion. Men who, who give up and who abdicate the protective role that God designed for them and who intentionally and repeatedly and continuously tell women that they're nothing more than their physical looks and that they have no value outside of their physical bodies. Men who, through the power and influence of their $15 billion a year industry that it has on entertainment and tourism, they've convinced our young girls that they should flaunt and promote the selling of their bodies as some sort of sadistic and disgusting form of female empowerment. And unfortunately, an all too common narrative in biblical conservative churches has been to protect the abuser and blame the abused. That's culture, guys, that's not the Bible. Men, this is not what God designed us to be. I know this because, you know, the Bible says in 1 Peter 3, 7, in the same way, you husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. And in Ephesians 5, it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. See that 
the biblical perspective here is that not all male leadership is, is toxic. You know, in fact, in our culture, we hear this phrase, toxic masculinity, right? I'm sure you guys have heard that. But I dare say that, um, that there's no such thing. There is masculinity. There is masculinity the way that, that men were designed to act by God, and then there's sin. The world doesn't want to talk about sin, though, do they? The world wants to talk about blame, and it wants to shame, and it wants to divide. But guys, I really think that this whole issue would go away if we would just be like the, 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 the husbands that Peter's description uh, in 1 Peter 3 is, right? I think it was that last slide right here. Give honor to her, right? Give it to her. Don't make, it, don't make her demand it from you. It should be freely given that you honor her. And honor, that means that we value her and that we praise her and we recognize her. We give her a claim. We treat her with understanding. Being sympathetic to someone else's feelings and considerate of their opinions. It's not always easy to do. But we need to know her and understand her. I'm telling you guys, it's your responsibility to make it easy for her to follow your leadership. Let her see you leading like a servant, like Jesus called us to, right? The way that he showed us, he exemplified it. Make it easy because you treat her with honor and respect. Well, let's get into line number four that our culture tells us, which is this. Men, culture says men and women are the same. But the Bible says the men and women are equal. Those, things, those two things kind of sound familiar, but I think that that similarity is, uh, is, is part of how the difference has come to be a problem. <clears throat> it's become commonplace to hear these days that men and women are the same, that they're interchangeable. In fact, it has become so common and so subjective that some parents have decided to abdicate their parental responsibilities and allow their children to even pick their gender or to suggest that you can change your gender. Well, this is misinformation, guys. This is a lie that's not what the Bible says. But let's look at how, let's look at how that lie took hold, that men and women are the same. See, our society and all societies all over the world have historically been biblically patriarchal, where the man is the spiritual leader of the home. But then sin, right? Sin crept into every facet of those societies. And that sinful desire for power and control devolved into abuse and conflict. Women were not treated equally or fairly and entire societies just accepted that. They accepted this corrupted concept, this corrupted relationship to just become commonplace. But in an attempt to bring that dynamic back to a healthy ground of a healthy middle ground of equality, that pendulum swung the other way and it swung too far. Rather than understanding and accepting legitimate gender specific limitations, the momentum carried the emotion to a point of suggesting and, and even demanding that women could do anything and everything that men could do. 
that there was no intelligent design behind their individual strengths and weaknesses. The fact is, <clears throat> the fact is women aren't lesser beings. They're not a subgroup to men, nor were they ever intended to be. Their character traits and physical abilities are, are blessings, and they are not proof of an unfair situation in the world. They were created as an equally valued part of the family dynamic, and they should be celebrated for their differences. They aren't the same, guys. They're complementary, which means something that completes or makes perfect, either of two parts or things needed to complete the whole. And first, in, in 1 Peter 3, 7, he says something to back this up. He says, she may be weaker than you are, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you should so your prayers will not be hindered. See, the biblical perspective here, guys, is that men and women are different, but they are equal before God. Now, of course, we're going to, you know, as we talk about this, we're going to think about some of these, these more obvious differences, right? Physical differences, right? Um, you know, men usually have more, more muscle mass than women. Um, we have t testosterone and, you know, usually grow beards or not, you know, most men grow beards. I meant most real men. Sorry, that's not written down here. But, you know, we, we, we generally tend to think of, of men as being stronger. But like I was saying in the first service, you know, women have the, the unique capability of giving birth. And that demonstration alone proves the strength that women have that I, could, I, can't, even, I can't even come close to touching, right? And that's a wonderful blessing that women get that, you know, we don't get to, we don't get to, uh, to participate in. And, you know, there's lots of differences. I mean, you guys, you guys know that. Most of you guys know those differences. Um, but where we're not different is our standing before God, right? Our, our wife is our equal partner in salvation. She's a co-inheritor of God's amazing grace. And just like, just like men, our wife has full claim on God's grace and the blessings of salvation. Men and women are completely equal before God, even if we have different roles. Now, um, I'm fully aware that some things on this list of misinformation that our culture feeds us might be a bit difficult to make peace with, right? But that difficulty really, really drives home this last point, this last lie number five, that our culture is feeding us, which is that Christians are, are divided. No, 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 no. The Bible says Christians unite. See, if we just look around, guys, at our country, I mean, how divided is our country? Really divided, right? And, and, and where it used to be kind of political, maybe, you know, red versus blue, left versus right, whatever, you know, whatever that is, it's, it's gone, it, it, it's divided in a million different ways, right? Instead of being cut in half, it's like somebody took a potato masher and, and chopped it into 150 different kinds of groups that are at war with other groups. And people expect the same thing to happen in the church, and sometimes it does happen in the church. When we interact with other Christians about some of these, these tough issues of the time, 
maybe some of the conversations that will, that will come out of, out of this message today or, or through this whole sermon series, we gotta, we gotta wonder, guys, are we taking our, our cues from culture or are we taking them from the Bible? Because ironically, guys, in fighting these culture wars, oftentimes Christians can be ju- become just like the culture around us. We, you know, we, we learn to fight by watching the culture fight. And so we use those same tactics of going with the cultural norms rather than what the Bible says about, about how to handle conflict. So, you know, we can choose to fight with either, you know, um, not with the goal of unity, but in winning the argument, Right. We could do that of, of promoting our, or protecting our sacred cultural opinion. But really, guys, we need to seek to discuss our differences rather than, than divide over them. <clears throat> and verse 8, Peter backs that up and says, Finally, all of you should be of one mind. Sympathize with each other. Love each other as brothers and sisters. Be tenderhearted and keep a humble attitude. See, the healthy biblical perspective is that Christians should, should live in harmony. And this really goes in line with what Brent said in, in chapter two last week um, about loving the family of believers. That's what we're called to do. And in this verse here, he's telling us that we need to strive for unity, that we need to try and be of one mind. Now, does that mean that, that we'll be in total agreement? No, definitely not. But we should have that same overall perspective, that sort of, that same basic orientation of basic values and beliefs. If we disagree with each other, our first responsibility should be to go to God's word and see what he says about it. That needs to be, that needs to be our habit, right? Anytime that, that something doesn't jive with where we, what we feel on it, that's what we ought to do. We should go, well, what does God say about this? We should also strive for, for like, a, like it says here, we need to, to strive for, uh, to have sympathy, to really feel for others. If other people are experiencing joy, we should find joy in what they're finding joyful. We should, we should experience pain in their grief. We should, we should love, we should share life together in meaningful ways that really create a bond. We need, guys, this means that we need to actually care. We need to engage in each other's lives. We said this before, church is not a solo sport. We need to strive to have tenderness and kindness. And I'm talking real gut-wrenching kind of connection where we feel it physically. You're moved to be kind and to be tender with somebody in their grief. And ultimately, we need to show humility, valuing other people ahead of ourselves. Now, finally, as we close here, I want to share this passage here in verses 17 and 18. It says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So guys, let's be, let's be united in this. In knowing that, that God sent, sent his son, his perfect, and his, his perfect son without blemish, to be crucified to death on that cross. 
But in knowing and, and, and having hope and understanding that, that death couldn't hold him. And after a couple of days, he rose again, defeating sin and death. If only we would believe in him, if we would repent of our sins and accept that gift.